Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life. I'm Bill Curley and I'm Holly Headley. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. All of that. Mm -hmm. So at the very top of this, I want to turn this thing on. And I want to invite you, and I'm going to continue to invite you to purchase this book, Zero Theology, Escaping Belief Through Catch-22s, by a man named John Tucker. I think this book cost about 10 bucks on Kindle? Something like that. I bought it on Apple iBooks. Have you finished it? Almost. Like it? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. I read an advertisement of the book, and uh, it was endorsed by Brian McLaren, someone whom many of us know. And this is what Brian McLaren says. There's something I've been trying to put into words for almost 20 years. Reading Zero Theology, I realized what it was. The author, John Tucker, is writing a theology that fits perfectly with what you hear Holly and me trying to articulate, uh, we're calling in this time between the no longer and the not yet. I got in touch with John after reading his book and asked him if he would be willing to come and do a webinar with us, and he is going to do so on March the 9th at 7 o'clock, and the webinar link will be sent in the summary of this talk. It will be on the website. <laughs> Tim said that, the, that he would put the link on the website this afternoon on the Ordinary Life website. Um, I uh, have talked to John now a couple of times. He's got a really interesting background. He has a background of a Southern Baptist from uh, Alabama. And um, he left being a Southern Baptist and became an atheist. And then he got back into religion through the door of philosophy. He is also trained as a lawyer, but now he's an ordained Methodist minister. And he serves as a district superintendent in Oregon. Um, This is what it says on the back of the book. John is from Alabama, so he understands that fundamentalism is a threat, that college football is king, and that barbecue is a noun. Barbecue is a noun. And in his spare time, he writes and records songs and puts them on Spotify. Get the book. Read it. It, 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 it will make, it's a stretch. It's a stretch. Fair enough? How to believe without believing. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean... Yeah, it's a stretch, but it's also liberating. Yeah. It is, I think, the best articulation of non-dualism that I have ever seen in print. Because it's really hard to do. But he says things in there like the first step on the religious path is not to take one. Yes. (laughs) That make your brain sore. Yeah. Anyway. It's a lot like like the Tao, the Tao dishing kind of. So I I really encourage you to get the book and read it, make notes, be prepared to dialogue with this guy who's going to speak on on March the 9th at 7 the usual format that we have is it'll be about an hour presentation and then he and I will dialogue and there will be questions from those of you who watch. Of course, there's no fee for this. Another thing that's going on in the life of St. Paul's is this Wednesday night Bible study that I'm a faculty member for on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm so grateful for doing this to do a deep dive into this piece of wisdom literature. It's really wonderful and it's fun to teach with uh, Mm -hmm. other people who are are on that. So uh, today is Valentine's. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. We were going to do outside services, but uh, it's cool. For Houstonians. I heard coming in the building today that it's getting even colder tonight and tomorrow. My kids are really excited that it might snow. Really? Yeah. Okay. You didn't know? No. No. Have you, by the way, have you any way of knowing how many people listen to our podcast? Uh, if you go through the week, you can see how many people have clicked on it. They might hear the first few words and be like, eh. 
but we can see that there are people clicking on it throughout the week. This last week, our guest was Scott Wells. Yeah, that and was fun. That Thanks, was so Scott. fun to do. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. And I want to I want to thank uh, Wayne Herbert, who uh, sends me such wonderful cartoons, and many of the cartoons that you see, if you're here by 9:30. Are things that came from uh, Wayne. Thank you, Wayne, for that. And uh, this being uh, Lent beginning on Wednesday is a great time for you to uh, pick up and read Jim Hollis's book, Living and Examine Life Again. 24 chapters, I think, in that book. If you read one every other day, that'll take you through through Lent. Mm -hmm. And Holly's going to hold this plate up. And, and then I'll pass it back to you okay. and pretend like we're doing an offering. Okay. If you would like to make an offering to Ordinary Life, you can do so online. Um, we have donate buttons on our website, ordinarylife.org, and it'll take you to a page where in the memo you can write Ordinary Life, and that money will go to an account, which throughout the year gets distributed to uh, nonprofits and organizations that are doing work for the poor and underserved populations in Houston. So thank you for your contributions. They get put to great uses. Um, contrary to popular belief, Bill does not have a, a jet, but he's still angling. And thanks to Holly for her willingness to sit here with me Sunday after Sunday. We thought in March that was the last about three or four weeks, and it's here been almost are. a year. <laughs> yeah. This is very generous of you. Well, I, okay. <laughs> it's Thank also you. been fun. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a good. And we don't have light at the end of the tunnel yet. I mean, maybe. I've had both my shots. Sarah and Sherry and I both have. You, you've not. I'm too young to be on a list. John, have you had a shot? John's not answering. He's not answering. He's watching He's... us on his iPad to see when it catches up. So he can't answer until he okay. hears it. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks to John Watson and to Tim Leatherwood and to Olivia Watson and William Budge for being the people behind the scenes that make this possible. And I want to say that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey or in the world or how you're dre dressed, pajama people or not, thank you for hanging in there with us and, and uh, being here today. So here's a question. How can we individually and collectively practice wholeness and integrity in this time of such incredible fragmentation and disinformation? And I want to add dishonest. John just got our question. The, the feed just caught up. <laughs> Anyhow, sorry. You know, I, I've, I've lived with this question with varying degrees of intensity for a long time now. And it is the question we're focusing on in this talk today. And I have, over the years, found some helpful things. But it seems to me that at the moment, we are as, as divided as a country as any time, perhaps, since the, the Civil War. Um, as you know, one of the key principles that I think is involved in walking a spiritual path is growth, growth in all ways, religious growth, spiritual growth, intellectual growth, emotional growth, uh, growth in the competencies that we need to navigate uh, our way through really wise and useful ways of living and relating with each other. And um, I got a model for growth from Marcus Borg years ago when I first encountered Borg's lectures and, and speaking. And Borg had a way of thinking about how people related to the Bible. And he called it a pre-critical way, a period of, uh, a pre-critical naivete way, a period of critical thinking, and a period of post-critical naivete. And I want to illustrate those three briefly from my own life. I think most of us move rather effortlessly, not without pain or discomfort through the first two of these. So I'll give you an illustration of pre-critical naivete from my own life. I am either blessed or cursed. By the way, we finished, so poignant, we finished last night watching the final episode of the eighth season of Monk. Oh. I love Monk. I'm going to miss Monk. You're going to miss. Well, you know what is so amazing? You can start all over again because of streaming. 
I can. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Josh had a bidding war with uh, yeah. Tony. Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. Yeah. Another yeah. story. Yeah, it's funny. But one of the, the things that Monk says when he's... Um, somebody comments on his brilliant ability to see things and get the facts right away. He says it's either a blessing or a curse. And I have been blessed or cursed with a memory that goes way back. I can remember scenes from when I was two, when my brother had the mumps and my parents were afraid I was going to get it. I can remember sitting behind an electric fan on the floor sort of speaking into the turning blades to make it sound like I was an airplane. Um, I remember Sunday afternoon, the Sunday afternoon uh, when we found out about Pearl Harbor. Hmm. I remember that. I remember the, af uh, the aftermath of that time, blackouts, air raid warnings. My father serving uh, as um, an air warden going to church on Sunday and there being paratroopers from Fort Knox in Kentucky who had crossed from Kentucky into this northern Tennessee town to go to church and my mother and father would bring them home for lunch. Mm. I was totally unaware of issues of racial and economic injustice and exploitation at the time. What seemed to me to be true at that time was an emphasis on community well-being and individual responsibility. And since the people around me were all making contributions to what we call the war effort, I thought everybody was. We all saved paper. We all smashed and collected tin cans. We all bought war bonds. We were eager for our boys overseas to come home. As a family, we moved during the war from Portland, Tennessee to Columbia, but that emphasis was still continued. There was rationing on, on gasoline, on sugar, on meat, on other grocery items. Uh, I can remember when the end of the war was pronounced and we all piled into my father's Oldsmobile and drove to downtown Columbia, Tennessee and drove around the square honking the horn and shouting out the window. Seemed the whole town turned out. It's only later that I found out 80 million people died in that war. Um, most of them civilians. Six million of them were Jews who were executed in Nazi concentration camps during the Holocaust. It never occurred to people in the neighborhood where I lived to lock their doors at night or when they left. I can remember if my mother needed something for cooking, she would go next door to Mrs. Brownlow's house, and if Mrs. Brownlow wasn't home, she would just walk in, take what she needed, and later return it. And Mrs. Brownlow would return the favor. As I said, at the time, the fact that we lived in a sea of incredible racial injustice never occurred to me, and it never, never dawned on me. It was just the way things were. When my grandparents moved from Portland, Tennessee to Columbia, Tennessee, their colored help, as they were called, moved with them. Endangered servitude. That is endangered servitude, mm -hmm. but it didn't seem that way to me. It was just the way things, things were. Mm -hmm. um, in spite of all the things I didn't see and all the limitations at that time, my experience was that this was a country where there was an essential and life-saving unity and a togetherness and a community. And this was pre-critical naivety. Not to say that some aspects of it weren't true, but when you travel, when your base begin, circle of awareness begins to increase, then you enter another uh, phase, and I came into the time of critical thinking. I began to realize that I had been lied to mm -hmm. about the matter of race. And as Molly Ivan said, when you find out you've been lied to about race, the whole house of cards comes beginning to tumble down. When I was in high school, there was a lynching of a black man within 18 miles of my house. And that was extremely upsetting to mm -hmm. me. And when I mentioned the injustice of it, the adults around me said, it's just the way things are. Mm -hmm. Which is a 
I think, I mean, not to say that it wasn't being said commonly, but it's a terrible thing to say to a child when they're asking questions about why things are the way they are. So when I began to agitate even more, <laughs> I was told, well, you just need to be patient. Mm -hmm. These things take time. We'll get to it. You know, if you're really interested in injustice, you ought to deal with the Native American issue before you deal with the black issue, mm -hmm. the colored issue, mm -hmm. as it was mm -hmm. called. I think it was then that I left home emotionally. Yeah, sure. I think that was it. And I began to see there were other ways of seeing things. I left home eventually physically, and this period of critical thinking eventually applied to everything, applied to my religious upbringing. Um, our country is not marked by any sort of unity, except, of course, rampant tribalism. Had a good opportunity to see that in the impeachment trial this week. What we're seeing played out right now is an emphasis on individualism, isolationism, and entitlement. And there is very little from our leadership about the need for community or individual responsibility. So when Marcus Borg used the next phrase, the period of post-critical naivety, he was thinking about how people could re-enter the biblical story with a metaphorical mindset and begin to see the stories in the Bible as parables and, and metaphors and, and that this would be a way to deal with all theological and religious teaching. I am using it now in the sense of our ability to be able to envision and embrace the notion of community in this time of divisiveness and, and division. I don't want to fall into utopian thinking, but I am interested in us exploring what does it mean for us to use the word our when we pray the Lord's Prayer. And Holly and I have, been, have decided to use the Lord's Prayer to do a deep dive into it um, to... Kind We're going to go it. word by word. Well, by word. Just kidding. <laughs> kind of, more or less, possibly. Next Sunday, I gave the title of the talk, Everything You Always Want to Know About God, But We're Afraid to Ask. Yeah. Our Father. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how can we individually and collectively practice wholeness and integrity in this time of such incredible fragmentation and disinformation, and Holly has an answer for that. <laughs> That's right. I, <laughs> well, we, we, my sound I, went off. I, no, actually, I think we do end up today offering an answer. Yeah, I do. And 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 a lot of it has to do with, if you want to turn us off right now, sitting in the in between. Yeah. So let's just sit here for a while. <laughs> um, I did have a dream. I forgot my notes, so um, that was tempting for a minute, but. Anyhow, I think as we engage with this question, what is our, um, what do we mean by collectivism? What do we mean by community? It is about um, sitting in this messy middle. I had a, a couple pages of pre-notes to this week's text because I wasn't really sure what to offer. I, I was not feeling super inspired, but I, I woke up um, Thursday morning, I think, thinking about a really strange dream. I won't go into it, but the overall feeling was that I was moving through spaces among people that were familiar to me, but I did not have a sense of belonging. I did not know where to fit. So it hit me that in this time of Jesus, this radical prayer that was taught that began by expressing a desire for belonging and saying our so I'm going to back up before I dive into that. And a little bit has to do with um, uh, Bill talking about Marcus Borg's uh, pre-critical, critical, and then post-critical mindsets. One of the things that Bill and I have attempted to do over these last months, and we talked about it God, well, now almost a year ago, to, is about deconstructing religious texts. So we, you know, we started with uh, some Buddhist texts, then have moved into the Lord's Prayer. We've been sitting here for a while. And deconstruction is, is, is actually a practice, a praxis, if you will. Um, and it's called deconstructive critical theory. Here's what it means. 
it follows the belief, questions, first of all, traditional assumptions about certainty, identity, and truth. And it follows the belief that objects have meaning because of language. As such, language uses binaries in which an object or word is given a sort of privilege over another object or word. So for example, we have these binaries, good, bad, love, hate, white, black, male, female, even father, mother. So deconstructive theory questions these traditional assumptions, and it asserts that words can only refer to other words and attempts to demonstrate how statements about texts subvert their own meanings. Don't worry too much about that. It's challenging what things mean. An example of this might be reading the same novel twice, so about 20 years, but about 20 years apart. Each reading has its own meaning. I have <laughs> I tell you this. I've read Harry Potter like 10 times the whole series. And each time I get something different out of it. But I'll take a different example. I read the book A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle when I was 10 years old in the fifth grade, maybe 11. At the time, I was fascinated by this idea of space travel, uh, this young girl who could sort of travel through different universes, through vortexes in the universe, and that she was doing something brave. So I identified with the little girl who was about my age in the reading of it. I reread it sometime around when the movie came out, when I was about 42. I saw totally different things then. I saw how genius Madeline Langle is and her kind of um, uh, wrapping together ideas about cosmology, faith, and love. I didn't see that when I was 10. And of course, the example also applies to the Lord's Prayer. Most of us have known this prayer and understood it in a certain way for most of our lives. But what it might have meant in the time of Jesus is very different than what it could mean today. And what it means to us as adults could hopefully be different than what it meant to us as children. So you did a series on the Lord's Prayer about 14, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and I bet sitting with it today, it's very different than how you sat with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, we just have different contexts and new things to, to examine into this. Um, into There's this an work. interesting point. I've gone back and looked at some of those yeah. in preparation for this, and I'm no longer that person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the time, that was clearly the best I could do on that, that topic, but I'm not there anymore. Yeah, your cells have replenished themselves at least twice. Yeah. That happens every seven years. Yeah. You're a whole new person. A whole new person. Yeah. You look beautiful. <laughs> so where this pertains to questions about um, faith, uh, meaning, spirituality, deconstruction is necessarily cyclical. In other words, it doesn't, it's not just over the course of a lifetime that you deconstruct and then sort of reconstruct. It's about every time you're faced with a new idea or uh, something you can't unsee, we must deconstruct the old to recreate the new. We have different questions at different stages of our lives, and faith, like everything, is evolutionary. I think about, I was thinking about Rob Bell this week, who was a, a, an, an evangelist, and I would say now you might call him a recovering evangelist, maybe kind of like John Tucker, mm -hmm. um, whose faith and church was upended when he affirmed homosexuality, female leadership, and raised the question about hell, as in does it exist. He said, the moment God is figured out with nice, neat lines and definitions, we are no longer dealing with God. Can, uh, I wanna jump in here and yeah. say something about Rob Bell. When Rob Bell was a pastor in Grand Rapids, I think it was Grand Rapids, Michigan, wherever it is that all the Bibles were published, very conservative part of the country, he was, uh, lead pastor of a church that a mega was, church, huh? yeah, a mega church, a mega church, mm -hmm. sixteen thousand people. Mm -hmm. I used to listen to him, his podcast, very, very faithfully. Mm -hmm. He's a great biblical scholar, mm -hmm. Hebrew and Greek, uh, which many of the conservative fundamental Christians are. They really know the Bible, and. He developed this incredible social passion mm -hmm. about matters of economic, particularly matters of economic justice and, um, and peace. When uh, a Hummer dealership was opened in the area where he lived, 
he challenged that about why do we need war vehicles right. here? Yeah, yeah. And so it was not, I mean, the thing that did him in was that he said, I, I don't believe there's a hell. But And homosexuals are welcome here. And homosexuals yeah. are welcome here. <laughs> and, and, and that did do him in. Yeah, which is just, I mean, that's the logic we're, we're challenging here. And I think that our, our community, we're, we're fortunate in that most of our community is also right there with us challenging, challenging that, mm-hmm. that set of beliefs that is exclusionary. Um, but I, so I want to be clear, I'm, I'm not trying to construct this nice, neat picture of God and how to make a straight line between doubt and certainty. I, I, as we know, certainty is not where we need to arrive. I'm trying to hand you a rather messy, incomplete picture of, that is beautiful, nonetheless. A, bu- a, bu- blah, my, I can't talk. A, bu- a biblical theme, I could not get that word out, sorry, that we see repeated throughout the Bible are stages of creation, confusion, and deconstruction. So an example is that God makes the world, humanity dis- descends into mayhem, God chooses a righteous person, starting with Noah, and begins the cycle over again. These are, of course, just stories, but they are emblematic of this birth, death, rebirth cycle of both natural and cosmic reality. The creation stage is defined by excitement, hope, enthusiasm for a new discovery. Let's take, for example, Einstein's theory of general relativity. That was a a creative act. It states that the universe is expanding in all directions all the time. This is awesome and astounding and terrifying all at once. This discovery sent this kind of scintillating fervor among scientists who were colleagues at the time, and then, of course, to the general population as it became accepted. But very soon, this concept of infinite expansion invites uncertainty. If we're expanding in all directions infinitely, what does that mean about about our three-tiered universe, about heaven and hell? What does it mean about creation? What does it mean about the myths that we've been taught? I want to remind us that it took Einstein just over a decade to accept his own theory and put it out into the public because he knew that it would change people's worlds. And he, too, was fearful of that. So he himself dealt with this period of confusion. He wouldn't fully believe it until he saw the red shift through Hubble's magnificent telescope in Southern California. He knew that if he put his theory out there, people's religious and worldviews would be turned upside down. Mm -hmm. So how do we make sense of these religious stories with this? This three-tiered universe, how things began, and the purpose of being human. We learned that the Earth, we, up until Einstein, and, and even still today, we're battling with this idea that, 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 that the Earth is human-centric, as opposed to us being Earth-centric or cosmic-centric. In other words, we think that we are special on this Earth and not just part of a general whole. I'll get into (laughs) my passions around cosmology if I keep going. But if we zero in on some of the things that we, and by we, I mean mostly white folks, have learned just in the last few years about, let's say, systemic racism, health care inequity, economic inequity. At first, we were inspired to read and learn and give money and time to causes that we began to care about. We were challenged, if not excited, to be better and lock arms with those who have been historically cast out. These are not bad things, but following the excitement, the creation stage, and the learning of new ideas, I would venture to say that many of us, I know I, when I sort of first got out of my little bubble of middle class, very advantaged world, I was confused. Why didn't I know, like you, that people were suffering? You might realize you have been lied to by our culture, some by our families. You might even begin to doubt everything that made you feel secure in the universe. Before expansion, most societies were content with that three-tiered universe. It was like Pascal's wager. Every rational person should live as if God exists, because what have you got to lose? It's a why not type of theology. If God doesn't exist, fine. We live, we die, and our losses are finite. But if God does exist, 
we can receive infinite gains by doing good and going to heaven or infinite losses by doing bad and going to hell. Why not live as if there was a God and a heaven? This is Calvin and Hobbes take on (laughs) what if we died it turns out God is a big chicken what then and his parents just eat your dinner okay eternal consequences that's what I loved Calvin and Hobbes when I was little and I I only just recently got that it's Calvin Hobbes like the yeah anyways that (laughs) took me a while (laughs) like it's what like the philosophers of Yeah, 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 yeah 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 so anyhow But to apply it to current social issues, confusion, I think, for white Americans about where we belong in society opens up possibilities for stagnation, which can lead to denial that produces rage or shame. We saw rage explode on January 6th. We've seen shame in that people say, well, what do I do? What do I do when I realize that this is the world that we live in? Confusion can also invite examination, which can lead to acceptance, action, and solidarity. It's a process and should not be rushed. Again, this is a lot about how do we sit in this area of contemplation and examination. But embracing confusion allows us to begin to see complexity, what Borg would have called, uh, would that have been post-critical naivete? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And nuance and ambivalence. We can begin to deconstruct the system that had previously been built. And deconstruction, so what we go creation, confusion, deconstruction, we ask questions to get out of confusion. Some things are okay to hold on to and others of course need to be let go of. The body replaces our cells every seven years as it grows and changes. We are even learning that our minds can be changed through neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. This is incredible. We are evolving, changing, and growing every second without conscious thought. It just is happening. So putting conscious thought to it can do amazing things. Deconstruction of any system takes the broken parts, the parts that don't work, and determines which ones can be recreated. So the cycle begins again. So we get back to what we could say is recreation. It's kind of like that cosmic Ouroboros that's constantly eating its tail, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's eating the old and regenerating the new. I think we take part in this cycle over and over again for two primary reasons. Humans are meaning makers and we want to belong to something. So with all of this in mind, we'll turn to deconstructing the Lord's Prayer. One of Cornell West's criticisms of American thought, and he's a, uh, a stinging and accurate and um, hopeful um, social critic. But his, his criticism is that we, we he, he criticizes um, that we are allergic to criticizing what we love for fear that that means that there's nothing to hold on to. And B, he says that we're allergic to intellectualism in general that Americans don't live in this sort of philosophy, ethical grappling space. We tend to want to rush to finding answers pretty quickly. Um, My friend Cleve Tinsley, who's been in here with us before, reminds me of this all the time. You can love something and question it simultaneously. I've quoted this by James Baldwin many times in the last few years, and he is, I've spent a lot of time with Baldwin lately. He says, love is a battle. Love is a war. Love is a growing up. It's a process. And to be in struggle is okay. We can actually create more intimacy as long as we do not fall into the denial that fuels rage and shame. To be in the creation, confusion, and deconstruction that leads to recreation cycle is to engage, I think, with love, with the struggle of love, and also with curiosity. So we just watched a um, documentary on Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. They were good friends, mm-hmm. Baldwin mm-hmm. and, and her. And um, I've also watched the film I'm Not Your Negro mm-hmm. a couple of times mm-hmm. now and read more of Baldwin. And my experience with that, his body of work causes me to respect him 
a whole lot. He's brilliant. Oh my gosh, he is so brilliant. I, I read some Baldwin when I was in my 20s and kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read it now. Again, this is how we recreate. We, we get something new out of something. And, and to your yeah. point, yeah. Uh, the first line of Baldwin's I ever remember hearing, which is sometime in the late 60s was um, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed unless it's faced. Mm -hmm. Sort of something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I knew nothing else about it. Yeah. No. He. I mean, he. He. He did not step back from criticizing an America that he wanted to love. Mm -hmm. And he talks a lot about the role of love in transformation, mm -hmm. that to love something is to want it to be better and to want yourself to be better in it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he really, he's just an incredible, incredible man. So Jesus lived, of course, in this three-tiered patriarchal universe. At the time, I imagine addressing God as father was both radical and also likely the only pronoun he could have used at the time. By addressing God as father, God could be potentially perceived as intimate, close, or filial, in short, relatable, and literally part of our DNA. Also, Jesus not only lived in a three-tiered universe, but the general theory was that time began with the creation of Adam sometime around 4,000 BC. In other words, the earth was thought to be maybe at that time 4,000 years old, and that lasted till about the 1600s, people thought that the earth was still only 6,000 years old. Some people still do. Some people still do, and some people still think it's flat. We'll just put it over there. Um, <laughs> it was not unusual at this time to imagine gods as powerful human forms. Think of the Greek and Roman gods who were uh, portrayed as like warrior-like, strong. I mean, check out the abs on that. Greek god, right? <laughs> these guys were, these were patriarchal, strong men. And God as father was also put, portrayed, I mean, the similarities are amazing to me, both holding a staff, kind of sitting on high, looking down. But when masculinity like this is um, kind of the prevailing assumption that it examines or, or holds up privilege and the presumption that men rule, i.e. only men can be religious, political, and thought leaders, we're in a negative patriarchal situation. So I'm going to imagine that Jesus is referring to God as Father and not only extolling this Father as loving, inclusive, and forgiving, that he was questioning the prevailing wisdom of a God that was toxic and dominating. He was also questioning the power of the patriarchy itself. That's a radical move. I think that he intended it differently than these sort of powerful masculine images represent. He invited us to think differently about God. It is our job not to keep it where it was in the time of Jesus, but to continue to evolve it. And that's what deconstructive theory can do, is help us to continue to evolve it, not stay mm -hmm. stuck. Mm -hmm. So here's the other radical move that Jesus makes. He makes God ours. Let's revisit who Jesus was talking to. Remember the diagram that we showed um, some time ago about the structure of society, this three-tiered universe. Heaven is up here. Hell is down here. You'll remember then that Jesus identified with the bottom 85% of society and that even, and in that, even the bottom 10%. So there was one person that was sort of the channel to God, usually a king, uh, a pope, a priest, whatever. And then there was the highest level of society. And then there was that sort of middle high level of society. And all told, that was only 15 to 20 percent of the, of, of the social order. Most people lived in this bottom 80 to 85 percent, including Jesus. And this bottom 80 to 85% was not invited into religious spaces, was not invited to be um, in, in shared spaces with those who were considered um, chosen elite or rulers. So he learned the language and the theology of the center or the top, if you will. And he indicates that he knows this language or theology by saying, you have heard it said, that around by saying, but I say to you, 
And that's how we've been taught to interpret Jesus' sayings. In the Old Testament, it's implied again and again that God would not hear the prayers of sinners. The Jews were the chosen people and everyone else was out. In the political sphere, the Roman aristocracy ruled. It is accurate that God was unnameable and unknowable, but also shrouded in mystery. So God was referred to as Yahweh. This is a tetragrammaton that meant God of Israel. But it was, it was a word, it was like an unsayable word. It's also said that it meant it was both masculine and feminine. And then God was never spelled out because of the unsayable, unnameable nature of the divine. In addressing God as our, Jesus was seeking to make God accessible, available, and known to the bottom of the bottom. In other words, you too are invited here into this space with the divine. I think Jesus also invites us to imagine that God is near and far. So as intimate as our breath, as mysterious as the greater cosmos. Jesus started this process of deconstructing and then reconstructing who God was thought to be. And I think we're called to do the same. So... um... Thanks for bearing with me, by the way. That was a lot of like <laughs> that diagram that you had up. The one before you want me to yeah. go back. Um, I, yeah. Well, I'll get, I have Will to go work? all the way through. Yep, I just have to keep it's going. Keep putting that up till the whole thing's up. Yeah. That diagram is kind of like how our country is organized right now, isn't mm-hmm. it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We still have a small percentage at the top, and most of the world even lives in dire. Poverty. I would say that the difference is, is that the top percentage of people who have the wealth is actually not 15 to 20 percent. No, I would say it's 5 percent or less. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So um, this is the world we live in. Mm-hmm. And this is the world in which we're trying to do theology. So this is a world that we have to deconstruct in some way, and that's very frightening and uncomfortable to people, even to me. Yeah. So you, you, you made a comment that I want to respond to. It said that at the time, uh, it was implied that God would not hear the prayers of sinners mm-hmm. and that Jews, being the chosen people, everybody else was outside that circle. So I grew up in, uh, in the Southern Baptist tradition. The only church group in the world that still has a geographical designation attached to its name. Is Southern Baptist? Southern huh. Baptist. And at the time, at the time certainly when I went to seminary, the seminaries in the Southern Baptist denomination Southwestern, Southern, Wake Forest, Golden Gate were seminaries with a really good reputation for being academically excellent. Hmm. But in the 60s, there was a movement, as there has been politically in our country, to take the Southern Baptist Convention to the right, radical right. Um, as a matter of fact, it, it, it has gotten so bad that when I moved my ordination into the United Methodist Church, the Methodist denomination no longer recognized Southern Baptist seminaries as competent, credible places Mm. for education. I got out in time, though. (laughs) the, The point I want to make that sometime this last year, a Southern Baptist leader died, mm-hmm. and he was best known, he became best known for a statement that he made during the 60s that just went like wildfire across the country. Mm. When he, His name was Bailey Smith, and Bailey Smith said, God does not hear the prayers of the Jews. Wow. Said that. Mm. Believed it. Meant it. Mm. And many people still do. Forgot that Jesus was Jewish. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah. it's a small thing. Yeah. Well, I think that's just, that's the radical part of Jesus's teaching is that in saying our, my belief is that Jesus meant our, specifically that 85% sitting, sitting closer to the bottom. That's where we will end up today. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> We're not there yet. So, We're still deconstructing. <laughs> this is something that I have learned from mm -hmm. Holly. In this universe, there is no such thing as an individual apart from his or her relationships. Every interaction between people and people, between people and things, between things and things, changes the face of history. I've learned it from you. Hmm. you I'll bless for a minute. Huh? <laughs> I'll bless for a minute. You, so you have to stick with that. <laughs> yeah. I believe it. Um... I'm, I'm going to say more about this before we're done today, because this is the this is the path that we're going to have to follow. This is our religious path. This is what uh, uh, in zero theology you're going to see more about. Some things that sometimes <clears throat> there are things that happen that give us a, a view of hope and possibility. So I'm going to show you some images. Uh, these you will remember. This is I-10 just west of Beaumont in a little rainfall called Harvey. <laughs> we are still cleaning up from Harvey. It occurred in 2017, and we're still dealing with the damages of Harvey. This is an aerial view of downtown Houston, just east of downtown. This is Ellen Parkway. Mm -hmm. The next images are first, there is a cover of the New Yorker that uh, appeared after Harvey. This is Houston in the skyline in the background and you can see a boat with people of different colors being rescued from the pickup truck. And then somebody put together this meme, Houston floods, White guy, black guy, notice the difference? Nope, me either. The white guy is carrying a Latina. A Latina woman and her baby, and the black guy is carrying two white children. Um, you know, we had this kind of national coming together after 9 11, but we blew it. We had a global coming together after 9-11, but we blew it. There was this cover on um, a recent issue of the week showing how getting a meeting in the middle or unifying is going to be difficult because we do not currently have the social infrastructure to make that meeting a possibility. So the call to meet in the middle faces a real reality is that we don't have a bridge that's strong enough to carry the weight. I had this cartoon, uh, Romeo and Juliet USA. Your parents, my parents think your parents are elitist, politically correct, gay-loving, tree-hunging, commie, pico liberals, and your parents think my parents are ignorant, Bible-thumping, gun-obsessed, redneck racists. What do we have in common? And she says, well, for starters, we're all American. <laughs> so, okay, I'm, I'm going to admit to this kind of naivete position, post-critical naivete. But I am coming to see that the only future, theological future that we have is the theolo theology that is based in science, and a theology that's based in love, and that those two go together. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I see. Well, even, I mean, Cornel West, who, again, strong social critic, Bell Hooks, one of my favorites, I would say a colleague and peer of, 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 of Cornel West, that radical love is the only way that we will have a just society. So... So a few years ago, there was a commission put together here at St. Paul's to study the future of the church, to develop a, a plan for the future. And um, 
I was part of that, and that study we came up with a phrase then that I cannot quote from memory now about St. Paul's as a sacred space in the heart of Houston where people meet to experience, express God's love and, and grace. But the study commission went further than that, and they reduced the whole thing to three words about what is the identity of St. Paul's, and it is an, uh, compassion and community the phrase that they put together. So the first word of the Lord's Prayer, as traditionally rendered, is our. When you pray, say our. Our Father, our daily bread, our trespasses, those who trespass against us. Even when you pray this prayer in private by yourself, that's the first word, our. And if we don't understand the reality that we are all in this together, the consequences for us are going to continue to be disastrous. So back before, and this again I learned from Holly, so you can blame her. (laughs) Back before there was this explosion that's called the Big Bang. And there is this egg of the cosmos, which I think, you cosmologists debate is the size of a pencil point or something like Smaller that. Smaller than that. Huh? Smaller than that. Everything that is, everyone who is, are, everything was in that. And what the cosmologists are saying is that's still true. We're all still connected that way. Now the mystics are saying that too. If you go back and you read Meister Eckhart or John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila or even come to our time and read Thomas Merton, right before he was electrocuted in Bangkok, Merton had gone to this conference of Eastern and Western religions and the prayer that he offered said, we are already one. Now we have to work to make that uh, uh, an experiential reality. It's already real. Our task is, is, is to realize that. So I'm going to own that this is naive. It's post-critical naivety. And our work is to make compassion and community a, a realization. When you put things and people together beautifully, you have one of the most powerful things that you could possibly have. Water is hydrogen and oxygen put together correctly. And being put together correctly, that water can create something like the Grand Canyon. It can also create something like Harvey. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the universe is not mean or bad. It's just basically indifferent. And we learn to live with that. And we choose the values that we want to manifest in this cosmological setting. Music is the putting of notes together beautifully. Stained glass windows are the putting together of glass in a way. You'll read in John Tucker's book his metaphor about stained glass theology rather than clear glass theology, which the Enlightenment brought us. The intimate love between two people, that's putting things together beautifully. And we've got to take this up as our work to create a community of putting things and people together beautifully or we live in chaos. I know because I talk to a lot of people during the week that there is a real experience of hopelessness among many people. And I'm going to say that this is where faith comes in. We choose uh, how to live in whatever circumstance we are found. We have no reason not to live as if we cannot make compassion and community a reality. I would um, stretch one thing that you said in the sort of cosmology, uh, idea of cosmology. The, the universe is not indifferent. It's not sentimental. It doesn't necessarily have a feeling about you or me, but it is responsive. Okay. In other words, it responds to the energy, the magnetic pools, the, the binding of hydrogen and oxygen, and the earth 
is also responsive to the creatures on it. It's also creative. Mm -hmm. So there is, I'm not naming it anything. I'm, I'm just saying it is responsive yeah. and creative. I, I, thank you for clearing yeah. that up because when I said indifferent, what I meant to imply is that um, the whole subject of theodicy about why do bad things happen, I right. mean, they do. Yes, yeah. It, it, I, I would say it doesn't have intent, like, pew, I'm going to just do away with that meteor right there. Pew, I'm going to do away with Bill right here, right? It, 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 but it has responsiveness. So one of the yeah. questions that comes up in spiritual direction all the time uh -huh. at some point is why do bad things happen? Yeah. And I've developed an answer for that. Yeah. Is that I will tell you why bad things happen as soon as you can tell me why beautiful things do. Yeah. It just is the nature yeah. of the universe. So that is a great segue into this image that I love that was taken in 2019. This is the first sort of cohesive image of a black hole that um, how many, I can't remember how many telescopes around the world it took to gather to sort of complete this image, but it was telescopes, powerful telescopes going off at the same time, the serendipitous events that had to happen in order to collect this image to give us some evidence of a black hole was incredible. A Hawaiian professor of language named it Poehi, the embellished dark source of unending creation. I'm going to get into a kind of abstract creative place for a second. I'm going to ask you to deconstruct with me. The first thing I want to say about black holes is this. The way they think, we think they operate is both destructive and creative. It just is. They are formed by a dying star that has collapsed on itself into a singularity. And this is the first paradox. In that center, in that singularity, is both zero volume and infinite density. So it is both nothing and everything. The extreme density pulls everything toward it. And at the very edge, which we call the event horizon, which is emblematic here in this bright ring around the center, Time slows way down. This powerful gravitational black hole elongates and likely destroys anything it pulls into the center. However, one theory is also that our universe exploded into existence from such a singularity. In other words, maybe it was pulled through another center. The beginnings of our universe made it through this singularity. This is the second paradox. A black hole deconstructs and recreates. Nature has taught us, in other words, how to do this. So where am I going with this? And what does it have to do with prayer and how Jesus envisioned a new world order? This thought is in process, and I, it, I just want it to serve as an illustration, not a scientific exercise. We can see Poehi here. We can see that it exists because of that fuzzy orange ring of light at the event horizon. Let's say that the center of that orange ring of light represents what we might call the seat of power in societies, and the dark edges around the orange ring of light represent the periphery. Those edges expand indefinitely. The center is restricted by the outline of the event horizon, but it also has the possibility to be creative. If we take away the orange ring of light, we have nothing left. We can't distinguish between periphery and center. It's really tempting to just say, oh, yay! We cannot tell the difference between interior and exterior, between light and dark, between uh, those who have power and those who, who do not. The temptation here is to say, a unified, colorless society. We might also think, oh, boo, I can't see anything, and there's nothing to hang on to. It's confusing and dark. This is the dual nature of deconstruction. It is both exhilarating and scary. I'm going to assume, and I may be wrong, that most of us listening here reside in the center and feel somewhat protective of our position there. It's, it's, it's contained. I wonder if we couldn't imagine the event horizon, so that orange ring of light, like a meeting place, a place where time can slow down, where we can sit in perplexity in confusion for a while, in the in-between. We can't get to that recreation without sitting in, in confusion. 
in, what, uh, in that middle stage of Marcus Borg's dialectic, too. I believe this is part of achieving wholeness. So here are the things I think we could think about. We need that orange ring of light. We're not going to go through the Lord's Prayer letter by letter by letter, I promise. But I do love that this makes a shape of an O, like an hour. It is whole. It is complete. And it represents a circle, which represents a, sen- a, a symbol of belonging, of wholeness. So to what or to whom do we want to belong when we say our? Do we mean all, like literally all? Or does it mean those in our tribe with whom we are familiar and comfortable? Does it mean those who gather at the event horizon, who come from the periphery and leave from the center, in that in-between? I want us to imagine ourselves somewhere on this, in this black hole. Where are you? Are you in the ring of light? Are you on the periphery? Are you in the center? And in what direction are you facing when you say our? toward the center or toward the periphery? And who is left out when we say our? This is the spiritual exercise of contemplating something so mysterious as a black hole. Jesus was for the liberation for those on the outside. He basically said to the center, you cannot keep God for yourselves. That's destructive. But if the center absorbs the energy of the periphery, this is liberation. This is creative. This is the act of something new. Here's what can come from a black hole. Pretty cool. So I want to be I, I want to be clear that what you've just heard is the future of religion. And um, relig- the future of religion is in this cosmological science. And then the way that we appropriate it is through parable, metaphor, story, uh, myth, ritual. But it's grounded in, in, in the science. I'm going to give you an example from a Christian tradition of what I think this is. Because this is, uh, we're right on the beginning of, of uh, Lent. Um, let me tell you a story about Lent that you know, but maybe you don't know in the way that you think you know it. Uh, this is, of course, the famous depiction of the Last Supper where Jesus said, all of you who want to be in the picture, come sit on <laughs> this side in. of the table. Um, all the Gospels have some version of the events of the last week. They differ from each other. Uh, and so the Christian church has kind of smushed them together to make one story. Uh, only in John's Gospel is there a story about Jesus watching, washing the feet of the disciples. Hmm. Foot washing was a very important thing because in walking around the city streets of a place like Jerusalem, you had to navigate, navigate garbage and excrement and all sorts of things. And so you, when you went into a house, not only was it just good hygiene, it was just good manners to make sure your feet were clean. And you could get somebody, a man in this patriarchal world, could get somebody else to wash his feet. He could get his wife or his children to do it, or a servant, provided that servant was not Jewish. Because in Leviticus it says that no Jew could be asked to do something, no slave could be asked to do something that would make that slave unclean, and washing somebody's feet would make that person unclean. So on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus got up and took his clothes off and washed the feet of his disciples. He took his patriarchy off. He took his maleness off. He took his status as a Jew off and assumed the position of a slave in order to do what needed to be done. I could say a lot about slaves in that time, but the metaphor is that this is a compelling, shocking, outrageous demonstration of what leadership in this empowering, empowered community would be like. So Paul... And Paul's writings predate the Gospels, although this story 
was circulating among the people at the time because it was so graphic and powerful. Paul would go on to say that the description of this empowering and empowered community would be no division into Jew or non-Jew, slave or free, male or female, among us you are equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus. I don't think there is a problem that confronts us culturally as much today as learning how to say our if we don't understand and live the reality that we are in this together I think the consequences are going to continue to be disastrous for us I could talk a lot about mask wearing but um, I'm not going to do that (laughs) how can we individually and collectively practice wholeness and integrity in this time of such incredible fragmentation and disinformation. And my uh, post-critical naive position is that we have the opportunity to practice an answer to this question every time we meet another human being. Thank you, Holly. I love doing this with you. Likewise. Okay. And I'm glad that you were here and um, we'll see you uh, next Sunday. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you next week.